0: Hi, it's Greg Dalton. I'd like to hear your comments on the show, topics we should cover, and guest suggestions. You can reach me at greg at climateone.org. This
1: is Climate One. I'm Arianna Brocious, filling in for Greg Dalton. Music often reflects the feelings of the broader society. So in the face of failing government
2: action on climate, why don't we have more climate protest songs? Part of what's wrong with this issue is people have so many personal feelings about it that keep them away from that feeling of indignance or of of power. And yet
1: more and more musicians are creating work to help them process their own grief and anxiety.
3: I started to notice just how many new projects all across the spectrum. People were singing about the climate crisis in a newly
2: direct way.
1: How do the personal feelings of the artist translate to the listener?
2: There's a lot of room for vulnerability because if you hear something and you're alone, Maybe you can take it in in a different way than you could if it's like a speech or a newscast. Coping with
1: climate through music. Up next on Climate One. Music and political or social movements go hand in hand. Nelson Mandela described it like this. Music uplifts even as it tells a sad tale. You may be poor, you may have lost your job, but that song gives you hope. Politics can be strengthened by music, but music has a potency that defies politics. If there were ever a threat that needed to defy politics and rally everyone, it would be the climate crisis. It will affect all of us, though not equally. Despite the global implications of the climate crisis, there isn't significant mention of it in most popular music. This episode is supported in part by the Sydney E. Frank Foundation. Tamara Lindeman is a Toronto-based songwriter and singer who performs under the name The Weather Station. Climate was a central theme of her 2021 album Ignorance. In the song Atlantic, she sings, Thinking I should get all this dying off my mind. I should really know better than to read the headlines. Does it matter if I see it? No, really. Can I not just cover my eyes? I asked her why the climate crisis can make us want to avoid the news or ignore what's happening.
2: It's interesting because, you know, I I feel like I, I would give the stock answer, which I feel like has become a bit of a narrative of like, oh, our human minds can't understand. You know, the scale of the crisis is so vast, it moves too slowly. But I actually don't believe any of that. I really don't anymore. I think it's honestly just because, of course, we want to look away from anything dark and heavy you know but it's no different than canadians and, and americans turning away from the history of genocide or or racism i mean it's like we tend to turn away from these frightening realities until something or someone forces us to look and and i really think that the reason why we turn away from climate is not because we can't understand it it's just because there isn't enough cultural and social pressure to look And I think that the other reason is that because for most people, they associate this particular issue with the issue of like individual responsibility and individual action. And because most people live in fossil fuel, you know, powered societies, the cost of looking, most people kind of consider the cost of looking as if I look at this, then I'll have to uh, you know, go off the grid and change my entire life, and most people can't do that. <laughs> they can't afford to. So I think I think that's the other major barrier that stops people from engaging is is this association with if I look at this. I mean, it's like I think I think a lot of Canadians like didn't want to look at genocide and Indigenous issues because we felt that the cost of looking would be oh I can't I can't be Canadian then or I can't you know that's not what is necessarily asked it's it's the looking needs to happen first so i think those are the barriers that's that's my perspective but in terms of that song i mean i wasn't trying to do anything i just happened to write it and then be like that's a real truthful thing that i feel and that i'm acknowledging in this song and i feel that if i acknowledge my own less than fantastic feelings everyone else will be able to acknowledge theirs I think something else I was trying to get out there was the way that previous generations all through human history, no one has had to carry the full knowledge of something like this ever, you know? And that is an element where, you know, holding all of that in our minds is really hard for us as as creatures.
4: Certainly. Yeah. I think that there's a lot touching on those things like systemic racism and genocide. Those are other major things that It's easy to look away from or or try to sweep under, as you say, because they're extremely difficult to face, like climate. And I think the personal responsibility aspect is really interesting because, you know, there's kind of different schools of thought, you know, there's on the one hand, Americans certainly and Canadians probably, uh, first world nations have a bigger carbon footprint, have more responsibility than others collectively for contributing to the climate crisis. And yet there are of course these major actors, oil companies uh, and others that have been way more responsible in direct terms for contributing and creating the actual emissions that go into the into the sky. And so I wanted to, to visit another song of yours. As I understand, an article about ExxonMobil inspired you to write the song Robber. And let's hear a little bit of it. And then again, we can chat about kind of maybe the, the role of that in terms of the songwriting itself. And so there you're describing, you know, he had permission, permission of thanks, permission by laws and banks. And so if society in one way or another has given these corporations permission to pollute, to, you know, um, put all these carbon emissions in the sky, we're all guilty for that on some level for allowing it. So how do we how do we handle
2: that? I think like everything's an ecosystem and everything's connected. And I think there are so many ways in which you know social licenses granted to people who you know for example work at oil companies and you know that's why a lot of activists argue that we need to revoke their social license but i think i think that that line i wasn't necessarily talking about like what do we do about it you know like obviously i have lots of ideas like let's cut off oil companies ability to advertise to you know to trade on the stock market to like you know what i mean like you have to just cut them out of, (laughs) you know, in every way, shape and form. But I think that what I was really talking about there is like, why, why is this possible? You know what I mean? Like, why is it allowed at all? You know, and I, and I think, I think what I was talking more about was this idea of a wrongdoer or a villain, you know, and, and who we, who do we think is a bad person? You know, how do we think about these concepts? And like, what I was trying to capture in that song was my own. Uh, I guess, naivete or like understanding of the world, you know, and how it shifts when you realize like, it's not just that everybody wants to drive a car. It's it's that like, there are actually people who have committed, you know, genuine acts of not just not doing the the right thing, but like actively trying to stop the right thing from occurring. Right. So I, I was thinking of like, who is that person? And, and this idea that that act, you know, as was, has been carried out you know by so many people like politicians and people at the api and people at exxon you know that act is encouraged it's not just that it's not seen as bad it's it's actively encouraged and and that's something that like i i don't know if i understand or i know how you know i know how i myself feel about it <laughs> but i think it's i think it's more a question of like just what a strange world we live in how bizarre this story is really.
4: Right. And I think that there's a growing awareness now and a much greater public awareness of the role of these companies than there used to be. Right. So there is less, at least among kind of a general population, um, whether that's resulted much in, in any actual actions limiting their social license to operate, you know, arguable. I read that when you were a kid, you had trouble sleeping at night because of climate change. And that some of those heavy emotions actually made you
2: avoid the issue for a time. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah. I mean, I don't remember when I, when I first heard the words. I mean, global warming was what it was called at the time. But I think my parents told me pretty young because I do remember being really, really afraid in a, a very child way of this idea of the natural world changing irreparably you know or the idea of the seasons changing and it really did frighten me on a visceral level as i think it does any child that comes into contact with that idea i just think for a child of the 80s maybe i learned about it fairly young um, but yeah it did keep me up at night it was it was a very a fear that i couldn't manage and then yeah through my life i think like many people of my generation it's it's been off and on Experience, right? You go through a phase where you're thinking about it a lot, and then you go through a phase where you're not. And part of for me really coming to terms with facing the climate crisis as it truly is and will be, part of that was looking at my own life and the ways in which, you know, f- through chunks of my adult life, I had uh, sort of hidden from that knowledge or, or hidden myself from it because I didn't want to think about it. And I I talk about that a lot because I think that's a very common experience. And I think it's what probably most people are doing day to day. And I always contrast and think of, you know, our response to the, the COVID pandemic, which which here in Canada has been very robust and common sense and scientific. and And the average adult I know is constantly thinking about, Covid nineteen and the pandemic and what's going to happen next and what's happening what legislation is occurring, and and yet most people I know are not thinking about climate at all. So I think when I look back on my history of avoiding those news articles, I I, as I say I bring it up because I think it's very common.
4: I want to ask you know did did your parents have good tools to help you navigate that? And I don't I don't mean. So much their parenting style or anything, just that it's overwhelming for adults as well as kids. And I'm wondering if did those discussions with your parents maybe change as you grew older and had a, a slightly, you know, older understanding of what global warming or climate change meant.
2: No, I don't think they did. And, and not to be negative about it, but you know, I think that they didn't know what to say or think about it. You know, and I think too, it was an earlier time where it was less prevalent in the news and you know but yeah i think that my parents didn't really when i think about being very young and 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 being really afraid of it i don't think my parents had uh, any idea how to respond to that and maybe weren't expecting that perhaps i remember my mom talking to me about being a child of the cold war you know and the nuclear threat but that didn't really put my mind at ease. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't really make it better. <laughs>
4: <laughs> no. No. You mentioned naivete and it's interesting that this album which deals so much with climate and climate grief you you've titled ignorance and I'm curious if you can explain, you know, the the thinking there.
2: I mean, there's a lot of like layers to that title and that's part of why I chose it because it there's so many different meanings and I couldn't really pick one as being, you know, the more important one over all of the others. And it's interesting that that album came out during the pandemic and really resonated during the pandemic, because I think one of the strongest threads of it, you know, when I wrote it and when I made it was, it was 2019, you know, and the world was really just charging forward, you know, into the 2020s as though nothing was happening, you know, and, and ignorance, of the climate crisis is so widespread, you know, and it's, and it's so common, you know, and, and, you know, what I was really trying to hit in that record is, is the moment where you allow yourself to, to break through that, you know, that, that veil of not wanting to know, not wanting to see, and not wanting to look. And then, and then you, you can't not. But I think I, I also was thinking about how ignorance works you know in, in the world you know I think of misogyny for example or 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 racism or or climate where it's like all these things are powered by a sort of like manufactured ignorance where we say like I know what a woman is you know and that and you're that you know and and whenever you have one of these ideas between you and and reality it 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 creates a, a warping where you can't actually see what's in front of you you know and I think with climate, there's so many of those that are making it difficult <laughs> for for the average person to see the most obvious thing, because there are these sort of ignorances that are like almost like physical things in, in the way.
1: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about coping with climate through music. Coming up, how should musical artists use their platforms to advocate for climate action?
2: I definitely believe that, you know, there's lots of moments where you know, musicians use their cultural power to push forward social issues, and, and this should be no different.
1: That's up next, when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Arianna Brocious, and we're talking about the role of music in the climate crisis with Tamara Lindemann of The Weather Station. The Weather Station's album Ignorance deals with many themes related to the climate emergency, one of the most prominent is Climate Grief. Yet, the music itself doesn't sound grief-stricken. I asked Lindemann how emotion influenced her songwriting.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that it was always my intention for that record to be kind of like, and it's the wrong word, but in my mind, I just would like thought of it as like a dance record or like, you know, have this grooving rhythm. And part of that was that I was thinking about how popular songs, you know, if they're well-made, they're very powerful and they're very palatable and they kind of move through space in this way that something more avant-garde can't you know and and i kind of loved the idea of lyrics as like the passenger on the this thing that just moves through moves through people and so i thought it would be interesting to sort of combine some of these feelings that are more tangled and and gnarly with something so approachable you know climate feelings like there's so many, you know, and, and grief is only one of them. And and I think the album is about so many of those feelings.
4: Yeah. yeah. I really like what you said there about lyrics riding mm-hmm. along like a a a, a melody or a, a song that carries people and reaches people just on the music alone. I think there's a lot of really good examples of that. And you can think of like, you know, protest songs and others that have if you stop and listen to the lyrics you think oh my gosh this is actually about something much heavier you know but the the tone carries you it's like a you know so social and political movements have this history of being strongly linked with music and musicians themselves from the civil rights movement to the anti-war movement and i'm curious how you see yourself in the context of the climate movement in that sense
2: i don't see myself as being a part of a movement at all but i definitely think and hope that I'm playing some role you know out there in the world and and I think too like having so much opportunity to talk about this in interviews which has really surprised me I mean that's something that I feel like I've ended up in spaces that aren't the climate activist world you know talking you know in the in the in the music section of the newspaper instead of the science section and I think that's part of what I've been trying to do and If I think about what I want to do next and like, or like what type of activism I would like to engage in, I think it's more about reaching people who are outside of that movement. Because I think that the movement, unfortunately, hasn't been able to reach enough people. But I do think that the average person, and statistics bear this out, the average person cares deeply about this issue. And if I can show up at, you know, on their doorstep in a Spotify playlist, then that's great.
4: <laughs> you know, we've been questioning here at Climate One why there aren't more climate anthems, right? Mm-hmm. Or sort of songs that kind of represent the movement, help galvanize people in the way that they have there have been for a lot of other movements. And you've written this album. I'm curious where you would place music along the spectrum of climate action, you know, from things like self-expression to actually encouraging others to act more directly.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's hard to know, right? Like I feel like the time when music really played a role in political movements, you know, like I think a lot of us sort of romanticized the sixties and you know, and yet like when you listen to some of those songs, they're fairly really strange songs to be anthems, you know, and and I think I don't know I don't know what role music has to play. I do think that the reason that, that the fact that we don't have a climate anthem or that we don't have better protest songs on this issue i do think about ha- how that reflects on how we view this issue and and i and i just really think so much that it it just always comes down to our own barriers with this issue you know in particular where it's like you know when i think of great protest anthems you know i think a lot about you know there's a lot of great like union anthems and a lot of great like workers rights and all of these things where it's like people anything that can charge people up and make them feel Indignant or angry or like powerful is often sort of the, the role of protest music of like a song that everyone can sing as they march, you know, like that's sort of what traditionally protest music is about. And I think part of what's wrong with this issue is people have so many personal feelings about it that keep them away from that feeling of indignance or of power or of a collective experience. I think that's why we don't have the climate anthem yet that people can jump onto, because they there's so many barriers.
4: The band, that The 1975, released a song in collaboration with Greta Thunberg. It's a pretty powerful piece. She states, quote, We have to acknowledge that the older generations have failed. All political movements in their current form have failed. But Homo sapiens have not yet failed. Now is not the time for speaking politely. Now is the time to speak clearly. And after recording that collaboration, the lead singer of the 1975 said, other artists didn't want to do it, didn't want to record this collaboration with her, bigger artists than his group. Uh, So why do you think that's the case? That something like partnering with someone who's been such a leader in the movement didn't appeal to bands that have maybe bigger stature?
2: That's interesting. I mean, I think it just comes down to, once again, I mean, the, the fact that of having a carbon footprint. I mean, I think that, I think most bands probably don't feel that they deserve to collaborate with someone like Greta, you know, because that's always the barrier, right? And and I think that she is such a wonderful uh, speaker and so clear, and she takes no prisoners. I'm sure everyone was just intimidated. <laughs> and that's, you know, I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's probably what happened.
4: You mean, so- Obviously, touring has a big carbon footprint itself, and a research paper published in Popular Music followed five artists on their tours to track their carbon output, and collectively they added the carbon equivalent of about 20 flights back and forth from New York to London in a period of six months. I mean, is that what you're talking about, where bands feel their own kind of climate guilt because of the work of touring and what impact that has, or are there other things you think might be... Getting in the way of them focusing on climate as a subject.
2: Yeah, that's specifically what I was thinking of. Was, was touring, and and obviously, like it does depend on the band and in what way they're touring. I mean, a van is better than a bus, is better than a plane. But yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. And in, and I've had plenty of personal conversations with musicians, and that's unanimously what everyone expresses: is that they want to say something about it, but they don't feel that they should because of touring and. Yeah, I think that's why I personally am just like, can we let go of that as an idea? Not not to say that emissions are like neutral or even okay, but just like, can we make it so that everyone can be vocal regardless of what they do? Um, but I don't think we're there yet.
1: <laughs> an open letter was released by the group Extinction Rebellion, covering the hypocrisy that's often discussed when musicians broach the subject of the climate emergency. The letter reads, Alongside these people who are already paying the price for our fossil-fueled economy, there are millions of children, called to action by Greta Thunberg, who are begging us, the people with power and influence, to stand up and fight for their already devastated future. We cannot ignore their call. Even if, by answering them, we put ourselves in your firing line. The stories you write calling us climate hypocrites will not silence us. The letter was signed by more than 100 celebrities, including musicians Tom York, Imogen Heap, David Byrne, Brian Eno, and others. Let's get back to my conversation with Tamara Lindemann.
4: You hosted a series called Elephant in the Room, where you discussed climate issues with other artists and musicians. What were those conversations like? What did you all talk about?
2: It was really interesting. I I only did it four times, and it was really powerful every time. And I, I really have been wanting to bring it back. That sort of my hopefully like when this record is done my next project or potentially moving it online but I I just find it so interesting like I, I find it so interesting what how people respond to this issue you know and a lot of it was what I wanted to do with that as I made it a live show because what I wanted was people to view each other's feelings in real life and, and confusions, right? Because a lot of people are like, they have so much insecurity and shame, you know, and and that was a big part of what I wanted to, but also, also, I wanted people to see others in their community expressing any climate feelings, regardless of what they were, just because I wanted to get it all out in the open. But yeah, for sure, other other artists, I know, definitely have struggled on how to talk about this issue and how to be you know especially on social media or whatever it is they a lot of people feel very whereas they feel very comfortable voicing concerns about social justice online it it, climate is one that they just they can't do it like there's like a barrier a lot of different barriers and and those conversations were more private conversations that i've had with people as to why but you know it's just such a big multifaceted issue and there's so many there's so much flack you're going to get <laughs> so that's why i mean there's a lot of reasons but but those are those are some though though i will say that a lot of people in the past couple years who had never voiced anything on it have have voiced things about it there's definitely been a real resurgence of people i know and artists i i know are really starting to show up for sure
4: yeah, you know, I think about, we talked about the power of like protest songs in some of the earlier social movements, but you know, you can also just think about the the social capital that a lot of really big artists have and how many people they have paying attention to them. And it is kind of striking to me that more of them don't use their platform for this issue because it does affect all of us globally. And there's a real opportunity, it would seem, to communicate with people who, who actually are a, in, in some cases, depending on what kind of music, you know, can really cut across a broad spectrum of people, too, politically, you know, ideologically. I'm kind of just wanting to return again to what you think the power is of music specifically and musicians to create change and possibly drive action around climate.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's like almost like two separate powers. Like, I think music itself... um power of music is is how intimate it can be um you know because we listen on headphones you know we listen the the words and music of music goes directly to us and there's no intermediary and and I think that's a very powerful force and I can think of so many things in life that I learned through a song you know or or I thought I learned through a song and so I definitely um believe really strongly in lyrics and and in the intimate relationship between singer and listener i think there's a lot of room for vulnerability because if you hear something and you're alone maybe you can take it in in a different way than you could if it's like a speech or a newscast you know so i think that as time goes on and people are beginning to write more about climate um in music i i do have hope that that will you know maybe a song might get through somewhere where like a, a speech could not, you know, because it's so intimate. And I think that, but I think that music, you know, ultimately, like it has to, it's an emotional medium, it has to talk to the emotions. And so I, I think it's like finding where the emotions are that need to be witnessed is like the interesting part of if I think about climate music, I guess. And then musicians themselves, like absolutely uh, musicians have a platform and especially you know, big musicians, yeah, have a lot of cultural power. And I I definitely believe that, you know, there's lots of moments where, you know, if musicians use their cultural power to push forward social issues and and this should be no different. And I, And I really hope that more musicians do show up on the issue and show up in meaningful ways and use their cultural capital to talk about it.
4: Tamara Lindeman is a musician and singer-songwriter behind The Weather Station. Thank you so much for joining us today on Climate One.
1: Thank you. This is Climate One. Coming up, a critic gives his take on the state of climate messaging in music.
3: As the news grew more and more dire, it worked its way deeper into everyday people's subconsciousness, and it started making its way out into the art, just like your worries show up in your bad dreams.
1: That's up next when Climate One continues. Climate, as a theme in popular music, has been largely absent until recently. As more and more people are experiencing the effects of the climate emergency, music is reflecting that reality. Jason Green is a contributing editor and former senior editor at Pitchfork, and author of the memoir, Once More We Saw Stars. He wrote a piece titled, What Can Music Do During Climate Collapse?, where he listened to more than 20 hours of music containing climate as a theme. In that piece, Green wrote, Music is the sound of human activity on Earth. After all, the hum our feelings make as we live. Climate One host Greg Dalton asked him what music has meant to his life and how it helps process emotions related to climate.
3: I think that I was trying to wrestle with just that question because I had noticed that many, many, many artists were newly addressing climate in their music. When that sort of thing happens, especially if your job is to listen to, you know, five, ten new albums a week and you know, think about what it is that you're hearing, it's very noticeable. It happens it you know, it might not be as noticeable if you pick up one song, one album, you're listening to this artist, but I started to notice just how many new projects, whether they were commissioned song cycles by string quartets or whether they were Albums of rock by singer songwriter, independent indie rock acts, you know, all across the spectrum. People were singing about the climate crisis in a newly direct way, a newly frank way. In some in some cases, a newly brutal way, given the reflecting in some way the brutality of the headlines. And I couldn't help but turn from there to ask myself whether or not I had considered whether or not music which was my number one emotional support in life that isn't another human being <laughs> you know i mean my when it comes to things that i rely on to feel like i know where my place in the world is and to feel safe and to feel comforted my wife my kid and then it's music
0: in your fabulous piece what can music do during climate collapse you write, quote, environmentalism as a thematic concern has been nearly vacant from the mainstream stage for the last two generations. So contrast that with, you, you noticed a sudden burst of creativity and climate awareness, and that followed a real void.
3: I didn't know that until I started examining the outburst of new art. And I mean, now we're in the year 2022, and I'm thinking about music that first started surfacing around 2016. When I went to sort of track back how recent this sort of explosion, if I could find a, you know, a singular point, and these things aren't that simple, I was really struck that year by a project by the singer songwriter um, Anani, uh, formerly of Antony and the Johnsons, and Anani she released a project with the very frank, all capital letters title, Hopelessness. And the first track was called Four Degrees. And on that song, Anani howls, It's only four degrees. It's only four degrees. And Anani has a similar wrenching, fleeting emotional quality that you might associate with stuff a classic singer like say Nina Simone. So when this person is sort of howling in that voice about how it's only four degrees, and I want to see the animals starve. There's a bitter sort of quality to the lyrics where Anani is almost like being a Cassandra, reeling off all these scenarios and bitterly, ironically, as insisting that that she wants them. It's almost as if to say, bring the destruction down upon us. And it was so stark in its power, in its visceral anger, that it just cuts straight through. And I don't know for sure whether or not Anani's song, and there was only one song on that album, that addressed the climate crisis specifically but that song to me has assumed the quality of a sort of opening salvo where it seemed to me that after that song i started noticing many new projects where people were not just singing about the environment and i think this gets at the crucial distinction that you were asking about where you said you noticed that you know i had written environmentalism had disappeared from the main stage, and I think what changed is that environmentalism had has gone in the in the popular music sphere from being a sort of trendy topic to touch on if you want to record a simple and easy message song, which had been the sort of song you might hear in popular music twenty years ago. Michael Jackson was someone who, in the you know latter stages of his career, recorded some very big budget, flashy protest songs about what was being done to Mother Earth. But you didn't see people grappling with it on an emotional, individual level. And I think if I were to offer a a hypothesis as to why, it's that as the news grew more and more dire, it worked its way deeper into everyday people's subconsciousness, and it started making its way out into the art, just like your worries show up in your bad dreams. And so then you had people who were reckoning with true... Visceral hysteria and panic and fear, and all these really dark and intense feelings the kind that are so powerful that they overwhelm us and they often render us unable to express ourselves by traditional means. And in some ways, I think this is what the impulse to make music is all about it's to make sense of feelings that are too big, too bad, uh, too good as well. I mean, there's lots of music made in joy, but. as the news grew extreme and people's re- awareness grew, I think it was inevitable. Somebody would stand up and start screaming, You know, whether or not that took the form of a, a music that sounded like a punk rock album, or it sounded like Anani or any of the other artists. Um, some cases, the, it's actually a whisper. I discovered so many different musicians who were making music, and the common thread was a sort of desperation. This had gotten too far for them not to start speaking on it. And I, I think that, in, you know, and just as art imitates life or, you know, in, in every other respect, that mirrors the public awareness of this issue, the transformation of global warming into climate change alone, I think. Um, I don't necessarily know how others have felt about that. I'm 40, 40 years old. Global warming was something happening in the early, in you know, in the 1990s. And by that, I'm being deliberately ignorant. But global warming was a soft worry in my mind as a child it was something that needed to be dealt with eventually and obviously the adults would take care of it because everyone knew it was a problem but no one expected to be affected by that in the 90s that i knew anyway i certainly did not and then it became more of a anxiety but only if you really were the type of person who sought out hard news to read in 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 efforts to inform yourself and this is the common theme i think with everyone you probably speak to about this is that it was it was just it was easy to ignore
0: so it, it, there's this cultural critical mass that happened and music captured and reflected that.
3: That's what I think happens with music all of the time. And I uh, this firmly how I believe music works. I think it's entirely a response we formulate to the feelings we don't know how to process. And yeah, so that's what I meant when I said that music is the hum our feelings make as we live, because I really believe that's what it is. And we're all feeling pretty bad about what we see. 20 years ago if you recorded an environmental anthem you were liable to ha- um, get people rolling their eyes at you for your self-importance because it was assumed i think maybe because of people grandstanding in the you know in pop's in like in the pop star world that if you were just being grandiose and self-important and you know you, people would make jokes about you in the same way that they used to make jokes about Bono someone who was out you know a rock star trying to save the planet Um, It was, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a lingua franca of all of these different genres as, you know, as it sort of is starting to become
0: now. You listen to about 20 hours of music about climate change. What kind of spectrum is there from, you know, John Denver to, I don't know, you know, protest anthems that are, that are angry and, and want radical punk rock change.
3: It was very clear to me when I looked back that although as like a, mainstream concern environmentalism had basically disappeared from the you know from the stage with Joni Mitchell and Neil Young in some ways uh, after that again it, you'd get you get the occasional beds are burning uh, midnight oil song but what was interesting to me was to sort of go back through the years what was happening in punk rock and and be remem- remember that oh yes the genre that was all about consumer waste and societal rot and the damage we we do to our environment without without thinking about it and thoughtlessly is punk rock. That those those are the things that punk rock was born to point out. It was born of those conditions: neglected, you know, urban places and kids who don't have work. And so you had someone like Polystyrene of uh, the band X-Ray Specs, who sang about climbing over mounds and mounds of polystyrene foam. I mean, her name comes from polystyrene, and she named herself that. As a sort of ironic tribute, Fugazi sang about burning from the sky, and the Dead Kennedys had songs about toxic waste dumps and about acid rain. So there is, an, and then in, in metal, you have an entire genre of uh, metal bands who who choose ecocide or or veganism um, as their you know their rallying cry. Um, I think if you're not a metal listener and you're only familiar with metal from its sort of public awareness, you know, its sort of image, you might not expect that you, like a thrash, like a, a full blown metal band, like a hardcore metal band would be singing about how you shouldn't eat meat. But in fact, it's true that you have many bands basically that adhere to that idea. So the more you look, the more you see that there is, a, you know, you just have to trace the through line.
0: One of the emotions underneath this you've you've spoken about is is grief, you know, trying to come to terms with amidst the climate crisis. and you wrote the memoir once more we saw stars where you discussed the unfathomable tragedy of losing your daughter. I cried when I read that book about what happened to your Greta. and so connect for us your capacity. I just wonder how that you I mean how that hits you if Greta is The iconic young leader of climate, and you lost your Greta.
3: Well, you know, I didn't know who Greta Thunberg was when when my daughter Greta was alive. Uh, My daughter was born on April 27th, 2013, and she died on May 17th, 2015. So her life was very short. We lost her suddenly um, in a tragic accident. And after she was gone, I remember uh, when I learned that there was a young girl who was standing up to world leaders and yelling in their faces that they needed to act, that there was this unbelievably young and fearsomely, frighteningly charismatic and intelligent child who had assumed the mantle of the entire climate emergency, and I could not, I could not help but immediately see that her first name was the name of my daughter, and I had not met many people who, who were named Greta, or had heard of many people. I mean, it's a, not uncommon, but it was just, it was just uncommon enough that it wasn't like you'd met three other people with that name and could assign no significance to it at all. And I didn't entertain the thought at the time, mostly because it felt like a vaguely self-important connection for me to be making between my private loss of my daughter and the climate crisis and this woman, this girl who has no connection to me or to my family in any way or, you know, but I, but I, I remember um, when she spoke to the, the UN, I believe, and she Yelled, shame on you. I turned to somebody who knew me well and I said, if anyone's named Greta, I'm glad it's her. <laughs> so for me, that was a, a moment of private sort of a meeting of a place in me that had spent a long time learning how to process loss and meeting another part of me that was learning again, freshly, how to process new loss or the idea of loss. I think that we're contending with people who are not directly affected right now by climate change in ways that are so obvious and so brutal that they can stare at it in the face every day. We, I live in, in, in New York, in Brooklyn, and I live near the water, but my community doesn't look at that water every day and think about what's going to happen to them. Whereas I think in other places, in other areas of the country and in the world, it's much more of a way of life to live next to water, to be near water, to contend with what water can do to your environment. So I don't live in the sort of ongoing awareness of the possibility of, of destruction that climate change poses to so many different places. I think that for many people who are trying to come to grips with their emotions, they're looking around their world for evidence of the apocalypse that they know from reading must be coming their way. And I think that this describes the emotional state of a lot of people that Might be fighting through confusion, despair, guilt, any number of complicated emotions they can't process.
0: And as someone who's had to go through that kind of personal grief, losing your Greta, what would be your advice on dealing with grief in general and climate grief in particular?
3: I have learned to grieve the loss of my daughter, and that meant that I had to come to grips with living happily in a world where something unspeakable had happened I had to learn to live in a world that could and had taken everything away and that is the the painful journey that all who lose a child have to go along and I think that it was a intensely as a harrowing sort of internal process that could not necessarily be measured by anything other than Greta's ongoing absence <laughs> after her death in the world. Um, it was a personal apocalypse.
0: Have you been able to find joy afterwards? And can other people find joy even in climate collapse?
3: I. Would never have written the book I wrote. I would never have written any book at all if I had a story to tell that was rooted in or about despair. In the act of choosing to tell people about my daughter and what we went through, it was an act of sort of wanting to be, wanting to heal, wanting to be healed and to heal Um, myself, you know. But I also know that presenting this is what people do, grief must be witnessed. And when it is witnessed it it can be processed. And I absolutely I'm I live through a harrowing dark time, but have come out and I live in a joyful world. Part of the dissonance of knowing that the planet's in such dire shape is that I I view it from a place of relative abundance and plenty.
0: I've come to learn to enjoy beautiful days and sunny days and say yes, there can be beauty r- yes. right here, right now. Even though I know the climate collapse is happening and the sixth great extinction is happening, and all these things are happening. Uh, in some ways, if we take this yeah. opportunity presented to us, we can in- embrace and enjoy the things that we might have otherwise taken for granted because we know that they're they're fleeting or or or, um, or yeah. disappearing. So, yeah, I mean, know.
3: absolutely true, and um, I think that. I had to face my anger and my despair in order to be able to process my grief at having lost Greta and to move on with my life. And I think in order to process and move on with my fear around the climate collapse, I it's the same process, you know, and I have to can you name your fear? You know, if you are feeling when I'm feeling overwhelmed by fear, um, it is helpful to be reminded that I should probably name my fear. And by doing that, I take it out of the realm of the unnameable <laughs> and into the nameable. And I think that that's a really powerful tactic for for dealing. And yes, um, it also makes you help be able to enjoy. When you face your fears, you let go of them for a moment and you get to... You get to enjoy the experience of your life again. Um, This is what persistent fear and anxiety can do. They can rob you of your ability to enjoy sunny days. It speaks again to the insane abundance and and prosperity through which I have lived, that this feeling is so completely foreign and unfamiliar, and that I am being forced to reckon with what millennia of humans have had to live with every day of their lives.
0: Right, and that naming is very powerful, and oftentimes music gives voice to those uh, things. Uh, How do you think climate will be represented in music going forward as the climate crisis continues to hit people in more obvious and accelerating ways?
3: I have always felt, and I do believe, that music is not a great container for political statements. You can put them in, but they leak out the minute you give them to somebody. You, you can't believe that they're going to receive the message that you loaded in there like a, mess, like, a, you know, like a message in a bottle because music is so personal. It speaks to that person. You're not there with them when they're hearing it. You're not in the room with them, and you can't control their reaction or how they interpret it, right? So I have always thought that it's a leaky container for things like ethics or morals or, or political messages, but I think it's an, it's the most effective one we have for speaking to our feelings. And mourning and, and um, I mean, what is music for, if not for remembrance and mourning? It's for celebration, remembrance, and mourning. Um, those are the three things that we've turned to music for. And I think that in some ways, the way music will respond to the climate crisis is the way it responds to all crisis in the language of personal loss, in the language of defiant hope, uh think about the way that music has you know worked in other times of great upheaval think about the way that music responded to the civil rights crisis you know uh the the civil rights movement and the you know and um decades of injustice the music that spoke most powerfully say sam cook a change is going to come that is a song of personal anguish that's an anthem not because it was a song about wrong being done and action that needed to be taken but it was one person's impossibly massive sounding yearning for better times. And I think that that's the same sort of way that musicians will respond to the climate crisis. It's with their humanity. And in some ways, it's the only way to be reminded of what it is that we stand to lose.
0: Jason Green is a music critic, editor, and author of the memoir, Once More We Saw Stars. It's a very touching tribute uh, to your daughter, Greta. Thank you, Jason, for coming on Climate One and sharing your story.
3: Thank you so very much for inviting me.
0: On this Climate One, we've been talking
1: about coping with the climate crisis through music. This episode was supported in part by the Sydney E. Frank Foundation. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be hard, but it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a rating or a review on Apple or by telling your friend about our show. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our producers and audio editors are Austin Cologne and me, Ariana Brochus. Our team also includes Steve Fox and Sarah Catherine Coxon. Our theme music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. Our host and executive producer Greg Dalton will be back next week. Thanks for listening.